thank you everyone for joining us today on As Per Usual, a podcast for practical patient engagement. My name is Bryn Robinson and today we're going to be talking about the ties that bind, shall we say, you know, it, it's not enough to recruit patient partners to the study, you have to build a relationship with them. Now, part of this work requires an awareness and appreciation of the merits of patient engagement, but participants in our study still felt that there were character and relationship traits that are more conducive to successful engagements. The question is, can you teach that? Can you teach character? Those are really important points, Bryn, and definitely echoed by our study findings. Specifically, our workshop participants stated that while there is growing awareness and understanding that relationships and engagement activities are at the heart of patient engagement and research, many research teams still do not give ample consideration to both. In case you're wondering, by relational aspects, we mean things like emotional intelligence, interpersonal and soft skills, and how you show mutual respect. Basically, relational aspects of engagement refer to all the interpersonal people skills and actions that nurture positive working relationships. And in terms of the activity-related side of engagement, we're talking about the more traditional research process side. So things like patient partners and academic researchers working together to establish clear and mutual understandings of everyone's roles, responsibilities, and the activities through which patient partners will engage in research, and also establishing accountability mechanisms for how decisions are made within the study. Other important activity-related considerations also include identifying the impacts that everyone would like to have on and through the research to ensure that everyone is working towards mutual research goals. So, how can we do better? Well, according to our study, in a preferred future state of patient engagement and research, it is standard practice for research teams to carefully consider and address both the relational and activity-related aspects of the engagement process. And an important step towards this is universal awareness and understanding of what these aspects are. Other identified supporting factors include engaging patient partners early, such as during the priority setting and idea generation stages of research and throughout the entire research cycle, so that patient partners have an opportunity to meaningfully impact the research in its entirety. Another supporting factor is creating designated engagement support person roles, commonly referred to as patient engagement liaisons. These individuals are the point persons for patient partners, responsible for ensuring the integrity of the engagement process, including that patient partners are supported in engaging to their full potential and interests. So, Clearly, there's a lot to consider when engaging patients and caregivers in research beyond just the activities you will use to engage them in the research process. So we have on with us two guests today to share their experiences building a patient-oriented research program whose foundation is built upon meaningful relationships with patient partners, and that also includes a patient partner in a knowledge broker and patient liaison role. Before I turn it over to you, Lori Pru and Dr. Corinne Tupin-April, to introduce yourselves to our listeners, 
We'd really like to take a moment to congratulate you both on the Choice, Choices Labs recent inclusive research award from the Institute of Musculoskeletal Health and Arthritis, both for patient engagement and team science. That's awesome and quite the feat. Good job, both of you. Um, my name is Lori Prue. Um, I've been I, I've been working as a patient partner actually for quite some time, probably before it was, you know we even knew about the strategy for patient-oriented research. I first became involved through my involvement with the Canadian Arthritis Network, which is actually where Corinne and I both met, uh, where she was a trainee and I was a patient partner and I was new to this world. Um, really, it was my first kind of step into uh, working with the arthritis community and, and, the, and the world of patient partners. Um, I happened to kind of connect um, through different uh, people who are already quite active in that space um, and, and and you sort of ended up at a conference uh, and and was uh, just actually quite surprised about how I could be involved um, because really I mean I have a business degree as my background I worked in human resources for over 15 years uh, and so I really didn't know anything about it. And so really, I, I didn't even think about bringing my lived experience with arthritis. Um, so I was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis when I was 14. So I've been living with this disease for more than 30 years at this point um, and working as a patient partner um, for close to 20, uh, to be honest. It's actually been pretty long. So. Anyways, that's just a little bit about me. Great. Thanks, Laurie. Uh, so, yeah, so I met Laurie more than 15 years ago at a conference, um, uh, and we were part of the Canadian Arthritis Network, which was an amazing network funded by CIHR, uh, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, um, and it was one of the networks of excellence. And the goal was that there were conferences, and you would have patient partners as well as clinicians and researchers, researchers from basic science as well as clinical research. And you would have all these people, you know, interact and each people, you know, each of these um, different people would present, uh, which was amazing. So um, to me, it really, uh, it was really, so I was doing my master's degree at the time when I was part of the Canadian Arthritis Network. And that's how I really met patients like Laurie really had a big, big influence on our training, right? So for me, training and research was like, you can't do it without patient partners. Like, so it was a, it was a really good, you know, setup for, <laughs> for everything to come. Um, so I'm uh, Karine Toupin-April. I'm um, a professor at the University of Ottawa. Um, I'm in the School of Rehabilitation Sciences. So I teach, um, I teach students in occupational therapy, students in physiotherapy, um, students at the PhD in rehabilitation sciences, uh, and I also teach um, medical students as well. Um, I uh, studied as an occupational therapist, so I did a bachelor's degree, and then I went into research, and I did a PhD in public health and epidemiology. And uh, I'm also a patient with asthma, so I started, you know, with asthma when I was six months old, so um, I kind of always lived my life as a patient, going to the hospital every few months, and um, 
you know, going on several different drugs and different, trying all these different types of complementary health approaches for my asthma. Um, so I also was a patient, I would say, very early on. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, I think we, we, we had a bond very quickly, Laurie and I, when we met, because we, I think we both, I felt that, you know, as a patient as well. So I wasn't there just as a trainee. <laughs> Um, so yeah, and it's amazing to think that we met so long ago, um, but we, I think we kind of kept in touch over the years and we started different projects, you know, working on different projects together. And at the start, Laurie, we would go for coffee. And I remember asking you, I was doing my, at some point I was doing my PhD and my postdoc and I was like, Hey, can we go get coffee? And I would ask you questions about, Hey, do you think this is, this is the way to go for this project. And we had a project on complementary and alternative approaches, like mm -hmm. complementary and alternative medicine. And uh, I remember asking Lori all these questions because I was like, I don't know what patients think of this, right? Mm -hmm. So that was like the first step towards mm -hmm. like, yeah, this discussion. And now like many years later, it amounted to like Lori having like a very, like a special role on the team, right? So, which we'll discuss a bit more soon, but yeah, for sure. I think Corinne was actually one of the first people I met at that conference because I remember just feeling like a bit of a fish out of water because I was like, "What are all these posters doing up on the wall?" Like, if you just, you know, like I had, when I go to conferences or meetings, they were like much more focused and the world of science and the way research was presented is. Um, was just really, really different for me. And I don't know, I'm not sure if Kevin like remembers, but she was one of the first people. I remember walking through these posters and I have a very clear memory of it just because I felt so kind of out of place. <laughs> and uh, like, am I supposed to be looking at these posters? And, and Kevin actually asked me if I had any questions. And I was like, well, I don't know. Tell me what your poster is about. And and I think that's, you know, where it sort of all begun and uh, we sort of stayed in touch. And uh, over the years, too, like, I mean, I'm quite involved, too, with a patient organization. And um, it's important that with this Canadian Arthritis Network, they had uh, a whole sort of patient uh, perspective that embedded every aspect of how the network operated. Um, so, and specifically, they had what they called a consumer advisory council. Um, and so a lot of members of CAPA today, or the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance, were actually members of the consumer advisory council. So Linda Wilhelm, uh, Janet Gunderson, um, there was a number of them. And, uh, you know, Dawn Richards as well, she started getting involved there. And they sort of came over and part of the legacy frankly, of, of CAN was, you know, taking that consumer component or that patient component. I know the terminology varies depending and sort of keeping that with CAPA. And so even to this day, we offer, you know, so many in our community are quite involved in various parts of, you know, arthritis research and, and you know, the impact of the disease is, you know, we often just see it as sort of affecting the joints, but it's much bigger than that, or affecting cardiovascular health and all sorts of things. So anyways, all that being said, you know, we've, um, you know, feel like a responsibility, I guess, to, 
you know, training people, uh, you know, so I guess when I think back to it, I think back to like my first experiences at the conference. And and although like I feel very well supported, it was just such a, a different culture and a different environment for me. So to sort of help people through that so they can get some more formal support as they embark on projects. And we actually match people as well to projects because we get approached a lot to be involved as patient partners in research, uh, you know, starting at the grant phase and, or sometimes later, it really varies. So uh, anyways, I just thought I'd add that on in terms of my own, how I felt, I guess, at the time, <laughs> you know. And you raise a really important point and it really does tie into the relational aspect. I know that I, for myself, sometimes as a researcher, I get so hyper-focused on the kind of output that I'm working on that it's really easy to kind of forget about the relational components and really the favorite things that make the research process so great. Um, and that's something for me personally as well, that engagement has really brought into my life and that I really appreciate. It's that relational aspect of things. And I can see that you and Corinne have a very deep bond. It's so nice to see too that it spans so many years. And our original third co-host, Roger Stoddard, um, who's no longer with us, but I had that with him as well. And it was great because it starts off as a research relationship, but then really it transcends into so much more. And that's one of the many fulfilling things I find about patient engagement and research, because I don't know what the magic sauce is, but I find that entering in those research partnerships, there seems to be a lot more space for the creation of those deep bonds. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a huge, right? I think it's an aspect we mentioned also. We talked about Laurie before, but I think it's really hard. Like we said, right? The relationship is so important. You can't expect to just do patient engagement and have someone just show up for meetings, show up for calls, do what you ask them to do. And that's it. Like that's not building a relationship, right? That won't, and I'm not sure, Laurie, but I think you mentioned sometimes like not all patient partners always feel included in, in research team. And I find that not building a relationship like that, just being kind of, you do this, you do that. It's a bit like a job you don't want to have, right? It's a bit like a job where you have no friends at work and you don't discuss anything personal, anything ever. Well, you don't know people, you don't build relationship, right? Mm. And why would you even stay in a team like that? Like, I, you know? Like right, because I know this is just sort of on top of your your life, right? As a yeah. patient partner, I mean, I've kind of evolved it. Oh, but this has taken like you know, as you can, you know, as I've said, like over a decade plus of <laughs> finding a role, and not everyone will even get there, right? Like I think the role I play with with uh, the team is, I think, helping with that relational aspect. Uh, because I I guess, you know, when I reflect back on all the experiences I've had as a patient partner, I think of like the way I'd like to be treated. And, and I try to always consider that, you know, I want all the right supports. I don't want to be fighting with people over, you know, scheduling something, you know, like, so it's just sort of like whatever time the team wants, like, I'll do it, <laughs> you know, so long as I can find something, you know. Um, 
recognizing that it's not like the number one priority in their life because a lot of, you know, the broader team, right, uh, are like in school and working and, you know, and they also live with a really serious chronic illness, right, that's affecting their ability to participate in all those things. I know because, I mean, I, I went through a lot of those struggles firsthand myself, right, so I'm trying to kind of place myself back mm-hmm. 20 years, you know, to the way life was for me at that point and trying to imagine, I guess, the different barriers that people may have and and to want them to feel like part of that team um, and that they're included and that it's different, right? So that they want to stay because I think, you know, um, it's sort of like, maybe it's because of my HR background too and it's like, not that I'm a big fan of the human resources word, but it's just part of like feeling included and and being part of a team. And you don't really want to participate, as Corinne said, if you're not. Like, there's a lot of different opportunities out there now, especially. So it's like retaining people in a way is is important. And like, why would you want to be involved in something if you're not getting something out of it? We talk about mutual benefits and it's like, it absolutely needs to be there. You know, like, right. why would I do anything in life without some sort of, you know, like you could be altruistic and all that, but to keep up, especially myself, I like just thinking over the last 15 years, you know, yeah, to keep it up over that period of time, like, you know, it, it absolutely needs to be benefits. And there's nothing wrong with stating that and knowing that and realizing that, you know, <laughs> I think that's life, right? Mm-hmm. And benefits are different benefits, right? It could be mm-hmm. that you're compensated for your work. It could be that you're acknowledged on the work, right? On the papers, on you know, that you recognize, your work is recognized and that you also build relationships that are, like meaningful too, right? Like all of these are benefits. Right. Yeah. Or that you see your ideas sort of carry forward in some way, right? That you see that your your input meant something and is valued in some way, right? That's um that you are respected and feel part of the team, you know? Um and I suppose that's why the sort of team science approach too, because you know, we've been working with you know, we have our own meetings with the, the broader group of patient partners, but we also bring them into the larger meetings, right? And then like debrief on that afterwards. Um, and so we're always trying to find ways to sort of better incorporate their perspectives. Um, so they're sort of front front and center. Um, so we've, you know, Corinne, you can maybe explain to we found ways over time to sort of better focus on that. And uh, to sort of accentuate, I guess, that or even like in terms of the consensus meetings that we did recently, right, Uh, it was like, you know, looking at like, this is what patient partners said, and this is like what research or healthcare professionals said, and this is what researchers said, right? So you're analyzing and you're like trying to think it through in different parts. Those are just a couple examples, but you're just trying to be more thoughtful and um, more actively include all those different perspectives. So I wonder with the, with, with, in terms of, um, and maybe this is a, I guess, you know, leaning back on your, on the team science, uh, a word that you've received and also your HR background and just your experience. You clearly, the two of you are friends and it's, it's great to, 
um, to see when, like, you know, when those when those projects evolve into into that, because that's, and I guess my question was when I was listening to you talk, Lori, was, are there like when you're building a team of patient partners and researchers together, um, are there important relational aspects to consider? Is it like any other team if you were approaching this from a pure HR, I guess, sort of lens? Uh, you know, there's often, and I know you just said you don't subscribe in, <laughs> to those, you know, sort of you know, personality, you know, those those kinds of things. But I, I yeah, I, I'm wondering if there is anything over your your time working together. Is there something... Lori or Karin, uh, is there's, you know, things that um, seem to stand out that lead to more of a, a success? I know. Do you do you want to go, Karin? The million it. dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> we both don't want to unmute our microphone. Wait <laughs> <laughs> for you to do it. I know you can get this part out, right? Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, I can I can say that. So I don't know. I'll say a few things, but I I don't know HR so much. But um, mm. but I, I don't know. I'm thinking that you know, it's very. So it, I think I think people who are who have empathy, and are able to put themselves in the shoes of others, right? And people who are trying to understand and and ask questions and listen to patient partners, and to all the members of their team, really. And I think that's kind of something you must have because if you don't have empathy and you're not able to ask questions and right and be able to receive these answers, right? Like if, for example, I ask the team, like, hey, guys, are we doing this well or not? And if I'm not ready to acknowledge that maybe there's some things to improve in their patient engagement or in their training we give or in the way we conduct things. Right. If I'm not ready to get that feedback and to them so that we can work together on it, then it's never going to work. Like if someone is. A, so I find these are kind of the things that I, I would see as really important. And I think Laurie and I, we get along well, too. Right. We're like maybe similar personalities, too. Right. Like I wouldn't. Right. So we're very much like um, like our personalities match as well. Right. So I think you need to find people that you can work with, with well. Like if there was someone that was a bit too like they they they're just one you know they want to do this and this is their own thing and and they don't they're not really open minded it would be very difficult for me to work with a patient partner like that like you know I don't know Laurie what you think but you yeah. probably have a better answer no and I think just perhaps working in HR and having to work with people a lot has made it perhaps more accessible for me to step into a role like this, uh, realizing that there's like so many, so many different truths, right? Uh, and there's uh, so many different perspectives that are one perspective isn't right and one perspective isn't wrong, you know, that we can reconcile all these different things uh, together. You know, I've I've worked in, you know, managing employee conflicts over time. I have, you know, worked with, you know, union management relations over time. So maybe all of that. I've also, you know, kind of taking a concept that we talk about a little more in terms of recognizing what power you have, right? Because that occurs in typical, you know, human resources sort of employee-employer relationships as well, right? It's very... Very central and, and very um, 
it's ever present, much like it is here, you know. Uh, and I guess just added to that, because I've kind of been through a lot of these same um, challenges myself, right? Understanding the powerlessness, it's just even more accentuated, frankly, in the world of patient engagement, because the loss of choice, the loss of voice that happens in healthcare encounters that uh, you really got to be cognizant of regularly. And maybe it's because I've gone through it. I mean, Corinne as well as, I mean, she mentions her experience with asthma, but I do think that has probably made a difference, right? It's probably made her more empathetic. Uh, I know you don't like it when I have to say really nice things about you in public, but, <laughs> but I think that helps, right? Because it uh, helps in it's taking a very bad set of experiences and just sort of being mindful of that and um, knowing that that it can affect how you interact um, with patient partners. Um, and I think that it is possible because I noticed, you know, one of the things we can comment on is around, you know, is it something that you can, a skill you can own or is it something that you just have? I mean, it's a bit of both, right? I think you cannot have it and be amazing. And it's funny because from what I understand, I mean, I haven't grown up in the health research world. Um, I mean, I've seen enough just through my different interactions, but it's not necessarily something that's, um, it's funny. I think as healthcare professionals, it's taught, right? In terms of your individual interactions, but not necessarily as much in terms of recognizing the power you have because of your position, uh, because, you know, it's your research at the end of the day, you know, the patient's name is just there as maybe a collaborator, or, you know, or it's 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 changing. And we're seeing examples, of course, where um, the engagement is perhaps getting to more of a level of true empowerment and decision making at times. Um, but, yeah, I think it's possible that I think someone can learn these things and just become very self-aware of 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 what power they have and and how and it just how difficult it can be to talk about some of these experiences um and bring that you know to a project or or, or to research in some way um there's a lot of translation that happens when you come to think of it you know there's from the individual experience and then how that's relevant to the research being done I think it can develop, I mean, you, you kind of need the basic skills maybe, and you also develop these skills. Um, I think also one of the things that I um, uh, learned about recently is we have a tendency sometimes to, and maybe it's worse when we use Zoom, when we have a lot of meetings back to back and it's all online, it's very easy to just say like, okay, what's our goal? We're very goal-oriented. And the whole point is like, today we need to make decisions on these 10 things, right? And we often, we don't have enough time in a meeting to, to really decide on all these points. It's often, it's too, it's not really realistic. And in the world of research, we have the tendency to do that of like, we, like, it's like uh, the, what is it? The, the end justified the means, right? Of like, however, like, 
our goal is to make decisions on all these things for a grant, for example. And we're not actually looking at the process of how we do this, right? So it's very easy if you make that, if you have that approach of we have to make decisions about all these things. It's very easy to then not spend time talking about like with patient partners beforehand, not take time to talk about your life, not to, you cut all the chit chat, you cut all the things that build relationships, right? So it's good. You can have all these Zoom calls of 55 minutes each because you need a bathroom break between, right? But then like, okay, you're going to achieve your goals of like research goals or whatever. It's a bit like if you're in the emergency room, your goal is like to save the person, to do all these tasks. But sometimes you put aside all the things that are a bit more human because of that. So I find we have to be careful and it's very easy. And I realize, right, Laurie, we realize that sometimes on calls, we realize, oh, some things maybe maybe we didn't take into account what the patient partner said, or maybe that person kind of dismissed a bit that thing, you know, but it was done because, oh no, we need to go fast and we need to go to this next item, but I don't think it's worth it. So I think in patient engagement, you can't really do that because what if you dismiss something and then the person's like, wait a second, like, am I even valued in the team? And then they want to leave the team, right? I mean, and I think researchers and clinicians were very in a mode of task oriented, but it's a bit of a problem. Right? It should be a bit more also relationship oriented, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's worse with Zoom because before we would have done a meeting of an hour and a half and we would have had time to talk before and time to talk after. And, but now we don't really, we cut these things. So. Yeah, but, I know it's, it's definitely challenging, but I do think like it's, uh, you know, I think there's some good examples too where, I, or, or at least some of the really good examples that I'd like to think from our work in particular, because we spent some time getting to know people, because, you know, honestly, I feel like most of the time I'm an open book. Like, even in my healthcare interactions, I'm just like, I'll tell them the story. Like, I was just at an appointment earlier this week, right? Like, diagnosis at 14, I took this, I took that. Like, I'm just... Uh, yeah, I, I've gotten to the point, I guess, where I'm pretty comfortable and relaying all that. And it's like, um, and I just always clearly say, it's like everyone shares what they want to share. That's what I decide to share. <laughs> and like no pressure whatsoever on anyone else um, because I'm sort of at one extreme of of, of that. If, if there's a continuum in terms of coming to terms with almost like, arthritis is like part of my identity as a person and I don't see that as a bad thing um it just means that I've like reimagined who I am and I'm happy to include that part of myself in it, you know um because I had to do that a lot over the last 30 years like imagining this is what I saw from life and well it took me somewhere else and I've met some pretty awesome people along the way and that's okay because that's sort of part of life. But anyways, all that being said, uh, just I think having spent some time like that, like even there's been some benefits sort of even outside the research process. So I do a lot of work with um, Natasha Trahan, who is is on our group, and she's the founder of a youth-led um, or um, not-for-profit called Take a Paycheck Foundation, you know, and so it led to us collaborating like outside the research space and we have a project <clears throat> that we launched starting with a survey of youth and I guess 
honestly, like supporting youth is always, or it's just a topic close to my heart because I just know personally how much I struggled um, as a teenager, as a young adult with a chronic illness when you're just so different from your peers that um, I feel like there's just so many things that don't address that journey. So anyways, topic very close to my heart. <laughs> And so, yeah, we've done a project called, it's called Make Room for Youth, like room as in rheumatology, like, you know, sort of a un double entendre, right, as they say, a double entendre. Um, so uh, anyway, so we've done other things, right? Or even with Corinne, we, and, and Natasha presented with us too at the Canadian Rheumatology Association on shared decision-making, you know, and... Natasha presented and developed the infographics and so it sort of transcends or I guess it's a knowledge translation activity but I just think it's it's led to so much more um, that isn't even within the world of research so so I'd like to jump in just to comment on one thing that you guys brought up that I found really in my own um research experience and then to also kind of ask you about another topic um, in a bit more depth but I've also found that myself that you know I'm also very research process oriented and I can tell totally when I get in that mindset as well because like you so described Corinne I have like my tasks I know when I need to get through them and it's like I'm hyper vigilant because I feel as though every minute of my life is basically spoken for. So these points need to be checked. And I think within that, though, something that I've noticed is that the process and the outcomes that occur when I'm in that mindset, I would say are definitely of a lot lower quality than what they would be if perhaps I was a little more flexible with my timeline and also created more space for others. Because I think another one of the beauties of patient engagement in research is that space for synergy. So is the project all about you and your own ideas and your own timelines? Or are you truly meaningfully engaging with others? And how do you engage with others? It's through conversations. It's through creating the space to co-create together. And that can only happen if your timelines are flexible, because how can you ask someone to express themselves and then just say, no, just kidding, like five minutes because we've got these four other points. So I am interested in what you have to say, but only if it's like contained within this like short amount of time. So I think that's something else where if people build in and just that flexibility and yeah, sometimes it may feel scary because you may think that you're falling off your timeline, but then just trusting and seeing what results. And I truly believe that anyone who creates that space, they will see the benefits and really try to be more flexible with their time. And something else that I've been pondering a lot myself and we've been hearing from our other guests about as well is the whole idea about power dynamics. And really, I agree, it's that importance of researchers and patient partners, everybody realizing what their power is in a situation and what kinds of teams they're trying to be a part of and create. And I know something else that I was personally really excited to hear about was your um, 
your knowledge broker and patient liaison role, Lori. And if um, you could maybe share kind of more about that and maybe bigger picture as well as what you see about the patient partner liaison role and how that could really help people disrupt um, the power dynamics that exist in research teams. Because that's something I've been trying to push people towards or gently nudge is especially when you're writing grants to budget for that because it's an integral part of the engagement process, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I, I think the role sort of evolved, like like Karen and I's relationship, right? It's just sort of evolved over time. Um, and I forget, I guess it was like 2018 or sometime around there that we were, you know, Corinne had asked me if I'd help her more in terms of facilitating the engagement, supporting the patient partners, I guess, because I have done, um, you know, worked as a patient partner for, for such a long time, including on her projects. Um, but I also like an important part I find of the role. So I do things like, you know, coordinate the meeting times. I, you know, at least developed like an initial draft of like what a terms of reference might look like, um, facilitate some of the conversations at the meeting. Uh, I do create agendas. So there is always some, <laughs> you know, time, but I try to like involve uh, the whole group in creating the agenda, for example. Um, I identifying some of the different strategies we could use to share the research with patients and public. So, you know, developing the website, um, you know, in English and in French, by the way, uh, you know, developing plain language summaries, identifying opportunities like that, uh, developing the abstracts with them, co-presenting, because I think it's important. I was going to say, like, I could have power, too right, in this process, and I don't want to be a gatekeeper. Um, I guess, too, reflecting on my experience as a young adult, even in a healthcare setting, I always felt taken less seriously. Um, yeah, like as a teenager, uh, as, you know, it was like everything was deferred to my parents, right? Um, like a lot of the time, even at that age, I was always pretty stubborn and like persevered, but anyways, I just want to recognize that. I don't want to be another gatekeeper to something else, right? I want to defer to them and, and what's important, but I want to support them at the same time, right? So it might be little things like, you know, doing a private message chat or maybe texting them during meetings, you know, just to see how they're doing in like a non-obvious like I'm not trying to but I also want to like help the group um you know have a voice and, and support them in having a voice so that's um <clears throat> excuse me just sort of how it's sort of evolved over time and uh, we've mm -hmm. just kind of like tried to figure things out we've had some plans to do things which I think we've managed to kind of um, accomplish a lot of what we had in our original plan over the last, I guess, five years. My goodness, time flies, but um, and COVID too has sort of changed that. But um, I think it's... Uh, but it, Marie, I, I think it, like, the thing is, I, I think having you as a knowledge broker, uh, there's a few things that we wouldn't have realized 
that were not doing optimally if you weren't, if you hadn't been a knowledge broker, right? Like there's a few things like, so I know that my power, the power dynamic is probably a bit more be between patient partners in general and me and the, the rest of the team as well. And Lori and I have worked for a long time. And so I felt like, Lori, if there's something wrong, if there's something we should change, Lori's going to tell me. And I always felt that what if other people say, hey, we should do things differently, but they don't feel that they can necessarily, you know, tell me directly or, you know, or, or, or if there's something with the bigger group that they don't feel at ease or there's something, you know, and I felt that there's a few times that Lori, you told me like, hey, Kareen, maybe we should do this and that, right? So that feedback was really important. And I think it came from you being a knowledge broker too, right? It came from you being like the liaison, like they would feel maybe that they can share more with you and then we would discuss it together. So I guess it's just to make sure that, you know, I know there's a power dynamic. I know sometimes I'm, as researchers, we're often like very task oriented, as you mentioned, Anna. So I think that sometimes I need, like Lori is an open door for all the patient partners, right? To tell you, hey, Lori, this is what I, I'm thinking. But I, maybe I don't feel comfortable to share it with the other team members on a big team meeting. And maybe I don't feel comfortable to say it to Karim, but maybe they'll, you know, so I felt, for me, I felt it was something that was needed. And it's not because I, I don't listen to people, but I know there's always that power dynamic, always. But like I it's think, there. Yeah, I think it's more, uh, or like just to add, um, it's uh, like when I talk with other people with arthritis, it's, I don't know, there's something different about it, right? Like you don't have to explain yourself and like the way life is as much, right? It's like, yeah, I get it, you know, like immunocompromised, COVID, uh, you know, uh, wearing masks and navigating a world that doesn't want to accommodate you. <laughs> like, I've experienced all of these things and I feel pretty privileged because I'm like university educated and like, I just want to, you know, like I, I come from, you know, a, a family that supported me through chronic illness, you know, that doesn't happen to everybody either. Right. And realizing the differences, but I think, I mean, we see that with peer support, you know, being, um, and I don't know if peer support actually gets the value, uh, or, or the healthcare system, I think, realizes the value that that can play. Um, and because even myself, like, I never really met another person with arthritis until I was, like, I started getting involved with Kappa, right? Um, and I've heard that even from people recently, like, the internet hasn't solved that problem, right? Like, as much as we think that people are more connected than they well, are wonder, real, you know? Um, well, I wonder if it's because to your point, like healthcare isn't relationship focused. So they don't see the value of peer support or the patient experience because they're not, it's focused on transactions and administration and, and not, and not like these things. Cause again, it comes back to time, at least from my own point of view. I mean, I don't know if that's what your experience is, but you're, you're so right. They don't value the, the peer support and what what one can get from that 
Yeah. I just really like that point. I had to like, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I think it's, and I think that's where a lot of patient organizations like Katha or take a pain check and, you know, like Natasha's done such a wonderful job of like involving a much bigger group. Like she even involved Naomi, who's also on the team in like a CBC documentary that she did, right? Um, you know, that she managed to apply for and they did the filming. And so it's kind of led two other things, which I should probably also provide the link to that. I was just thinking as we were talking in terms of showcasing, because they talk about just, and and I get it, and that's probably why I've, I've kind of stayed as involved as I have, is because, you know, a lot of these transactional uh, sort of healthcare encounters kind of render you powerless, right? Like patients can't really do a lot at the end of the day. Like I can't write a prescription though. Like, you know, often there's as much as I'd like to be able to write my own prescriptions and I want to sometimes. Um, and, and that's why we do, we do research on shared decision-making, right? We did the whole infographic that you guys did with Natasha Trehan. Mm -hmm. We were telling clinicians at the Canadian Rheumatology Association meeting, like, we want shared decision-making. This is what it needs, and it needs to have relationships. And as you mentioned, not just a transaction of this is the medication you can take now. Take it, please, and then, <laughs> then we'll meet next time. Like, yes, I know, or make a big switch to your medications. And, like, you know, it just doesn't consider the whole impact on the person and their lives and the lives of their family and um, or school, you know, I've seen people delay making any big medication changes, right? Because of just life commitments and they don't want to rock the boat and I don't blame them, you know, like that's a valid, valid concern. Something so. that I've really appreciated from what you've reflected here as well is thinking about the importance of not only a patient engagement liaison, but perhaps a patient engagement liaison that's a peer. Um, so I appreciate you fleshing that out. And something else that I've heard before, and I was wondering your thoughts as well, is um, I've had people share with me frustration sometimes when there was a patient liaison, but that person didn't really necessarily have any sort of decision-making power within the broader research team. So then I had people share experiences with me where the patients themselves, the patient partners felt disempowered. And then they said that this patient engagement liaison was appointed, but then the patient engagement liaison as well had no real true connection to the research team or to really influence anything that was being done. And that for me was another thing that I've started to ponder about as I share with people the importance of patient engagement liaisons. So ideally, every research team member shares decision-making power, but if for whatever reason, like that isn't there, then the solution is not to appoint a patient engagement liaison that also has no power. Then, you know, it's like time to do a timeout and rethink the whole entire process. But what do you think about that? Uh, well, it sounds like, you know, a bit of tokenism in action, right? It is it's what it, you know, they haven't put the time necessarily, or they haven't opened the door, right? People will have to kind of go into it with the mindset that um, they're going to change their mind, right? That they're actually open to having their mind change based on what they hear, right? As opposed to sort of just 
plowing through things. So I think there needs to be that sort of recognition underneath that just appointing someone to a role or appointing someone like I, I like to, I, I always find, I always, this isn't about me, right? This is not about my experience as a patient burner, though I can use that to relate to people, right? Or to help support them in one direction or another to, you know, validate how people feel. So you also need to make sure that you're preparing them and you're putting people in the role that um, they can effectively execute it as well, you know. Uh, and I think we've just kind of learned as we've gone along, right? <laughs> like, I don't know, I just, it's kind of like a bit of a, an experiment in a way because I don't mm. think we've necessarily seen We've seen sometimes, uh, or like somebody like Don Richards, right, has kind of like embraced both aspects of this. And mm -hmm. I think we need to reconcile maybe these sort of different roles. Um, that and and it, it's interesting because I think a lot of researchers too they 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 don't from what I've heard they don't always know how to embrace different aspects of their lives and bring it to the work, right? Um, or there can be concern, right, about potential bias, I guess, or can they do research on an area, you know, but to me, that just brings you so much closer to things that it can only be mm -hmm. good, can't it? Like, I don't know, unless I'm really missing some yeah. important element there. I don't know, could cat, cat, cat in if you have any other thoughts. But So I guess one of the thing is, it's like, it's very easy to appoint to say, we're going to have patient partners and we're going to have a patient partner liaison. But then the thing is, as soon as that patient liaison brings brings something that the research team doesn't agree with, that the researcher doesn't agree with, then they say, well, too bad for you because the researcher wins. <laughs> then, you know, what's the point of that, right? So it doesn't, so I felt a few times in our research, we had some times, right, where um, some patient partners wanted certain things. So for example, some questionnaires, right? We wanted to add questionnaires about like mental health and fatigue and a few questions like that. And we had to actually look at it together because I was like, oh, but maybe that's going to be too much for patients to answer all of this, right? So we had together to be like, okay, we'll find a, we'll find a good, how would you say? Like, we'll find like a, like kind of a, an a middle ground, yeah. A middle ground, because the thing is, that's the reality, right? So if the patient partners say, we want to add mental health, we want or we want to assess this in mental health, and then we don't do it, then what does it say about our process of like getting feedback and being like listening and everything, right? So I think what we decided is we added certain things and we found outcome measures that were right not too cumbersome, and then we added them, right? But I think the goal is that the patient partners really brought this, which it wasn't on the radar as researchers, but in the end, we made a change. But if you have no power as a patient partner liaison to make any changes and nobody acts upon it, then like it's only yeah, tokenism and it's only to check a box for the grant you're applying for, right? So yeah. I find quite a few times we made changes and all the aspects of mental health, for example, came right when we develop a web application for pain. Um, and in the end, we really add, we're adding now mental health symptoms and everything because patient partners said it was really important and like we, you know, it, and it was very, it really came from the feedback from patient partners. Yeah. And just, uh, I guess, 
it's been a little while since we touched base, cutting, but we, uh, when then the project I'm doing with Natasha now, the Make Room for Youth Mental Health is the top, top issue, right? It's, uh, that needs the most support that's caught, that's affecting people's day-to-day -day lives. So it's consistent, you know, at least with our survey of like upwards of 70 people with the various forms of um, juvenile arthritis, you know, like up to the age of 30. So anyways, it, it is a big issue. And I think you just need to be like open to working through it and committed to kind of working through the process, mm -hmm. even if you don't agree, like, and, and kind of creating a, a sort of environment where we still all respect each other and can relate to each other, mm -hmm. even if we don't, you know, want to, um, yeah, that sort of addresses everyone's needs at the end of the day. So, and you mentioned that you were a peer, right, to the others, to the other patient partner, and I think that's one thing too. And you said that you know each other, like you're able to relate to each other because you have some of the similar or different experiences. But like me, not living with juvenile arthritis, like I don't know these things, right? I really need you guys to help me figure out like what we should have, right? So I so, think we're figuring out together. And that's just it, eh? It's uh, together. I mean, that's really the the thing to keep in mind uh, for folks getting into this is that moving forward, it has to be alongside each other. It's a partnership and it takes time. And I think you've both alluded to that over the course of our conversation and also the empathy that's, you know, required and understanding where your power is and and how you can negotiate and be able to use it or not use it, you know um really or share th or share that that power as well um things that i certainly um i was hearing you know in terms of the relational factors for engagement before we start to wrap up although i do want to finish with one question and that is you know what little actions can we take if we were to say to someone tomorrow you know here's one thing you know practically you can do to to improve like, from a relational process perspective for patient engagement what would you what would you suggest to them? Besides wandering conferences and getting coffee, <laughs> which I think are awesome, and I I just love that it was so organic for both of you to mm -hmm. to meet and nurture that relationship. But so I I think what I would say so some of the things I would say is um if you're if you're thinking of engaging patient partners so if you're a researcher and you're thinking of engaging patient partners try to do it as soon as you think of a research idea, right? Try to engage them early. I think you mentioned that, right? Engaging them early, even if it's not, you don't know what you're going to do as a research project exactly, to get people with lived experiences on board early so that you can think about it and like, and start a discussion and a conversation over time about these ideas, right? Rather than like, okay, I have a grant. It's all written up. <laughs> I need a letter, a letter of support. I mean, we, we've all done that, to be fair. I mean, it happens sometimes because sometimes you don't have a choice and you have to do things quickly and then you're like, oh no, you know, but, but I think we, even if that happens, that you put, you bring people on board, like give them enough time, always be cognizant of it's going to take time for people to kind of, you know, you, you need to have discussion. You need to have the time to discuss these things with the patient partner. And you need to also discuss like each other's needs 
and like so how so for example terms of references right like so you know what kind of compensation what kind of work what kind of task what kind of schedule what you know just to and really ask like all these questions to patient partners and not patient partners as a global thing but like each one personally when you bring people on maybe i'd say also if you can find someone with a lot of experience as a patient partner first it's easier because like so Lori is like very experienced, but I'm I'm not sure I would start with like someone who's never been a patient partner before. I would start with someone who, you know, or or you or you try to find something someone like Lori to help you find other people and to you know to really try to like because you all need to kind of learn through it, right? Um, so that's one thing, and find some some find some people that you connect with and that you find nice and you you know it's easy to work with. Um, and one of the things I would say is there's also a clinical trials Ontario. They they did a tool. It's so there's a patient decision aid and there's an investigator decision aid on their website. Uh, and so it, it tells you like, oh, if you're a patient, if you're a patient, would you like to be a patient partner in a research team? And what do you need to consider to become a patient partner? And the same for an investigator. Oh, you wish to engage patient partners? Like, what do you need to know to do this? Like. For example, you'll need to find a budget. You'll need all, like, it's going to take you a bit more time than if you don't do patient engagement. Like, all these things you need to consider. You can't say, I'm going to ask for letters of support the day before the grant, and then it's all set up, and then not speak to them for months <laughs> until the publication is ready. <laughs> right? Laurie's laughing. So, yeah, so this would be my advice. I don't know, Laurie, if you have others. <laughs> I know, I know. Um yeah, I guess just not be afraid to take the first step. I think I hear that a lot of the people think it's complicated, but, you know, um, it needs some consideration and thought. There's no doubt, you know, we're not just going to like steamroll through um, and, and treat patient partners exactly like you would someone else on your research team. And, and arguably there, I'd say maybe it would change the dynamic within how you communicate and manage your research. Um, and, you know, a lot of those collaborations, like, is it really any different than how you collaborate with someone else, right? Like, aren't these the same skills, really? Um that you're just using in a different way. Um, so yeah, I would just say like, don't hesitate to kind of make that first step and, you know, kind of go in with like, I think first and foremost, is just sort of an open mind, a mindset that you're actually going to change something with your research um, and, and, and starting to build those relationships um, with, you know, even a few patient partners. Um, I always recommend more than one, right? Just because life happens and it's good to to get a broader set of feedback and that sort of thing. But that would probably be my one sort of take home message. It's That's... funny, Laurie, I'm much more cautious than you. <laughs> but I know how much Laurie has, needs a lot of courage for a lot of things, right? for a lot of meetings, for a lot of things where you put yourself out there. And like, you need a lot of courage to do that, right? So I think, you know, unfortunately, like, like you said, like you need to be willing to share and everything. And I find we need to be really, we need to recognize like that every time that a patient partner says something that is like personal, yeah. they open up, mm -hmm. they open up to be 
judge, criticize everything, right? Yeah. 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 It's a bit like saying to your physician that you don't follow their, that you don't take their prescribed treatments or, or asking too many questions in the clinical encounter, which never happens to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. I, I think, yeah, just recognizing that it's like, you're not coming at it from the same perspective at all. Right. Uh, I mean, when was the night, the last time you had to go to a meeting and share all of the bad and awful things that may have happened to you, right? I mean, Hi. I'm involved too with like Sepsis Canada because of an experience with sepsis, just to kind of bring this home a little, right? Not a great experience, right? Like, you know, a lot of the people involved as patient partners in the network, including myself, I mean, suffered incredibly, right? We were like in ICU or, you know, having organ failure, uh, organ damage uh, and going into, you know, these are not pleasant experiences yet, you know, the expectation is like, oh, you'll just sort of open up about all these things, <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, we don't expect that of others. So yeah, it's definitely more challenging. So you just really need to try to understand where people are coming from and to have like, you know, like try to live a day in their shoes, trying to share that same sort of information with a bunch of strangers, right? And I think maybe it's because I've kind of come to terms with like how arthritis has fit into my life. Like I said before, it's part of who I am. I'm I'm now at the point of it's sort of like calling myself disabled as well. I've I've grown into that word, you know, where I didn't always feel comfortable identifying with that because I'm kind of like owning my place in the world. So I guess that's some of the courage that I guess courage is talking about. I don't know. It doesn't seem like courage. I just feel like maybe I finally, you know, just at a place where it's okay to be that and yeah. to say that and, and to share these things because it'll never get better if we can't even just have some basic understanding of what life is like for folks. So. And I think that's what really, yeah, I mean, what really brings it home in terms of when we talked earlier at the start of our conversation about empathy and to build, you know, to be able to go into rooms and to share for, you know, understanding that your words can help shape and improve others' lives, but to have that courage and to also to not have, you know, to not be fearful, like you said, Lori, about going, you know, just, you know, build a relationship, don't worry, like learn together. It's not about, you know, everyone's going to make mistakes, but we can learn from that together if you have the right mindset. Mm. Um, so I really, you know, I think that's a great place for us to, um, to bring it back together and say, you know, thank you both so much for joining us this evening for our conversation on relational factors and processes when it comes to engagement. Um, for those of you who are um, new as we're wrapping up here uh, to as per usual, are on our podcast. You can find us on YouTube and we have our Substack, which will have a transcript of this conversation, as well as all the uh, resources and links that both Lori and Karin have generously shared with us today, along with their words. And as well, we're found on Apple and Spotify for uh, th those of you who'd like to, you know, listen to your podcast as opposed to you can watch it as well on YouTube. But uh, if you have any questions or comments, uh, please feel free to leave a comment on the Substack or to email. 
Anna at Anna.asperusual at gmail.com or myself, Bryn.asperusual at gmail.com. So again, on behalf of Anna, I thank you so much, both you for, for spending the time with us this evening and together we can hopefully uh, make patient engagement the standard uh, moving forward in research or as per usual. So thanks very much, folks. Mm -hmm.